You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. All right, well, I can't believe that I'm the only one who's this dumb. Here's what happens to me all the time. I pull out my phone, and I go like, oh, yeah, I had something to do. And then I see a notification on there, and so I, like, to respond to the text. I, like, I check the email. I do the thing. I had something to do. I can't imagine what it is. And so I do the thing, and I flip back. And then a couple minutes later, I'm holding my phone with a completely blank face because I have no idea why I picked it up in the first place. <laughs> I can't believe I'm the only one who's like that. Anybody else? Just make me feel better. Thank you. You and I, no matter how much we try to mask it, are perpetually, chronically, and maybe for some of us, increasingly forgetful. Welcome to our four-week, or our week four of our summer teaching series through the book of Ephesians. Chapter two starts today. I think our forgetfulness actually is also true spiritually. Hold on to that thought for just a minute. All through chapter 1, you remember, we've been the last three weeks, Paul paints this portrait of who we are in Christ. If you need a subtitle for all of chapter 1, that's what it is. Who we are in Christ. And it's this giant, beautiful portrait. There are no command verbs in the entire first chapter. Nothing you have to do. No, go clean up your life. No commands, no imperatives. Just bask in what God has done. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, we're going to turn a corner today. And Paul does something really intentional. (laughs) He wants us to really see who we are in Christ. He wants us to see it, this portrait that's up here. See it in its high def. See it until you really, really memorize it. Because when you get back to the main screen of your life, and stuff happens, you're going to forget who you are. Just to get personal, when I look at my greatest failings in life, when I look at when I get sideways, when I get like impatient, when my soul gets a little bit sour, it's usually because that portrait that Paul wants me to see of who I am in Christ is somehow reduced to a postage stamp, and I can't see it. What if Christian maturity was about closing the gap between who I actually am in Christ and how I actually live my life? What if discipleship was resting in who I actually am, becoming who Jesus tells me that I am? What if the life that God wants for you is not a matter of trying harder, knuckling down, this never-ending game of perfection projection, but remembering who you are and how that happened in the first place? Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) So this morning, we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there, or follow along on the screen behind me. And we're just going to go verse by verse through this text for like the next 30 minutes or so because this text almost preaches itself. This text does not need me. It's actually a beautiful, beautiful text. 
So we just get to hop in and enjoy the ride. So before we get there, though, a few things I want you to watch out for. First, this text, is it, 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 if you could diagram it, it breaks down into like two halves with a change right in the middle. The first half, almost, verses 1 through 3, this darkly illustrates natural man and woman, who we are apart from Christ. And it's pretty bleak. But then something happens about halfway through this text, and the entire direction changes. The entire tone changes. One commentator puts it like this. What Paul does in this passage is to paint a vivid contrast between who man is by nature and who he can become by grace. Now, here's why I bring this up. We are people that are hardwired for hope. I think the last three or four years are an exercise in what happens when hope is delayed or squished or not acknowledged. And we don't feel like we have any hope. And Paul's about to make the case that the only hope you have is the gospel. So that's the first thing I want you to watch for, just this shape that kind of goes like this through the text. Second thing that I want you to watch out for, Paul is super, super blunt. <laughs> and you're going to feel it. This text hurts a little bit. It's kind of like that, like, hurts so good kind of feeling, like, oh, gosh, Paul. His bluntness serves a purpose, though. He's going to be talking about these really deep spiritual truths, things like wrath, grace, and mercy, but depravity, like really, really hard truths. Here's why I bring this up. I believe that every culture and every people or person in that culture, including ours and including us, is at least partially blind to the problems they are facing because we are too close to see them correctly. And this is where God's word does us a great service. Most of the time, we can't acknowledge or name the real problems that we are facing. And so God's word does it for us. It does a tremendous service. And so watch out for how Paul labels the problems of our world. Third thing I want you to watch out for, then we'll get into it. Everything Paul is about to say is said retrospectively. And all that means is that he's writing to a group of Christians in a city called Ephesus. These are people who have already acknowledged their sin before God, confessed the sufficiency of Christ alone, and they're living for him. So all of this has happened in the past for this church. And here's why I bring this up and why it's so important. The last thing I'll say, then we'll get to it. That's not true of everyone in this room, and it's not true of everyone watching online. I'm not so naive to believe that everybody sitting in this room, everybody watching online, is a Christian. Some of us are still on the fence of this whole thing. And I say this to say, when you see these words, and as you hear yourself in these words, because you're going to find yourself at one point or another, Please view this as God's invitation to you. So with that said and all the groundwork laid, let's get to it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. And you were dead. That's a great start. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. The power of positive thinking. Here we go. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Pretty bleak picture, right? 
Three comments about these verses, and then we're going to get to the hinge that lifts us out of them. Paul makes three pretty devastating observations about our natural state before Christ. First observation, we're dead. We're dead. Paul supports this with two concepts. It's right there in verse 1. Man, apart from Christ, is dead in a couple of ways. We're dead in our trespasses and our sins. Trespasses. This means like you're walking along and you take a giant misstep that puts you in danger. That's a trespass. Sin means that I can't make the mark. I have failed in some way. And so taken together, these two words mean that you and I, we are both rebels and failures. Some of you might remember um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the differences between dogma, doctrine, and preference. Remember that? Dogma, the stuff that we should take a bullet for. Doctrine, the stuff that's super important to understand. Preference, carpet color. Don't die for that. (laughs) These verses talk about a really crucial doctrine called total depravity. And here's what it means. Total depravity means that without Christ... Every aspect of Brandon Marshall is touched by sin. Without Christ, total depravity. No part of my nature is left untouched, unscathed, or unaffected by sin. Same with you. This is everything post-apple core in the garden. (laughs) Physically, my body doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Yours? (laughs) Mentally, my mind doesn't behave itself. Yours? Financially, I worry, I hoard instead of trusting and stewarding. Sexually, my sexuality is wrapped around the axle of what Paul calls the lusts of the flesh. Emotionally, before Christ, I'm never secure in who I am. I'm like an emotional ping pong ball. Spiritually, I'm constantly at war with God's authority, believing that I know better than he does. Here's Paul's point. Before Christ, sin just isn't something I do. It's something I am. And the result is moral deadness. I'm dead. Dead people can't fix themselves. Dead people can't raise themselves. You and I can no more save ourselves spiritually than a corpse can resuscitate itself physically. And so whatever God's going to do can't just start by fixing the outside of Brandon, just my behavior. It's got to start in here. I don't need better behavior. I need a new heart. (laughs) Well, how'd we done get dead? Great question. Glad you asked. Here's Paul's answer in the second observation. He says, we're dead because we're slaves. We find this in the phrase, it says, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, in most cases in literary Greek, that phrase, following the course of the world, is a beautiful phrase. Most cases. What it means, if you look in other places in Greek literature, it means like the undamming of a once dammed up river. So now the river is free to follow as it was designed or as it wants to follow, as it wants to flow, wherever it wants to go. Pretty picture, right? But in our case, this is actually really disastrous. The undamming of a morally dead heart left to ourselves without any guidance or restraints, going wherever we want to go, is not actually a good thing. On our own, we will always go according to the path of least resistance. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? (laughs) Doing whatever comes naturally. That sound like any world you've ever heard of before. Could you imagine what that would be like? Glad I never wrestle with that, aren't you? 
I hope you're picking up my sarcasm because I'm laying it on pretty thick. Paul's saying that when I do what feels right in my life, that actually doesn't lead to life. Where does it lead? It actually leads to death when I reject God's authority over me. Now let's make this personal. The greatest deception of the non-believer, I think, is that he or she thinks they are moving around in their world as a free thinker. A reasonable, autonomous, objective person. And Paul raises his finger here and he says, no, you're not. You may think that you're the captain of your own ship. You're not. You may think you're in control of your mind. You're not. You may think you're pretty smart. Mm-mm. Like a self-governing, self-directing, free-thinking, autonomous person. And Paul says, no, you're not. By offering us the phrase, following the course of the world, what he's saying is you're a slave and you don't even know it. Life apart from God is a living death. Now let's lift that phrase up out of first century Ephesus and drop it into 2023 United States. One of the greatest values in our world today is autonomy, self-authority. I do what seems right, what comes natural, what makes sense, and what gives me life, right? And who are you to say otherwise? But if we take Paul's words seriously here, I think we have to insist that any person living as their own authority, while initially appealing, appearing very alive and very free, is as spiritually unresponsive as a corpse. And in reality, enslaved to someone that they don't even acknowledge. Natural man, natural woman, is not a free thinker. We are deceived. We've become so used to the chains that the bondage is normal. So these are Paul's first two observations. We're dead and we're enslaved. But now the third. He's got one more piece of bad news before we get to what God does. And this is the darkest and in my mind the most disastrous. Third observation, we are condemned. Here's what he says in verse three. Among whom we all, notice, he's not pointing fingers. He's not going, you bad people. He's going, we're all in this together. (laughs) This sinking boat with the hole in the bottom. We all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We get the sense that the undammed river has now spread itself out and has settled where it will. Its waters have calmed, and now we can see it for what it is, but the picture is not good. The result is deadness and enslavement, and a picture that says... You wanted to run your life? Okay, fine. Have at it. (laughs) You did what you wanted? You want to follow your own authority? Great. But like Adam and Eve, you guys ate the fruit, and thousands of years later, we're all still choking on the same core. And the result is the same for us as it was for them. We've become objects of wrath. That's not a fun word to talk about, but we have to. What's it mean? Wrath. It's an old word, and it basically means God's righteous judgment. How many parents are in the room? Anybody a parent in here? God goes, don't touch the stove. And we go, whatever. (laughs) And so God goes, what are you doing? I told you not to do that. There's a word for that. It's just good old-fashioned pride. Here's the most succinct definition of pride that I can give you. I know better than God does. That's all pride is. 
There's nothing new under the sun. And so we like to think that we're light years away from the tree in the garden. We're still sitting under the exact same branches, listening to the same whispers, choking on the same fruit. That last phrase, like the rest of mankind, just means we're all in this together. You don't get any advantages. You're no more special than anybody else. We are all equally disadvantaged by what Paul calls sin. So, that's part one. It feels like the negative of, of a photograph, doesn't it? In verses one through three, Paul plunges us down and down and down and down, and we're deeper and deeper into this darkened view of lost humanity. We're dead, we're enslaved, we're condemned. By the time I get to the end of verse three, like, I'm starting to get a little depressed. <laughs> like, there's got to be a source of hope coming, right, Paul? Surely there's light at the end of the tunnel. Verses one through three can't be all there is. Good news. Everything's about to change. How? And that's the question. How? How is the mess of Brandon Marshall going to get fixed? How does a dead man become alive? How does a man enslaved become a man freed? How does a condemned man get to walk away scot-free? How? And in typical Pauline fashion, Paul answers the how with a who. Verse 4, here's what he says. But God, stop right there. If you've got a Bible, underline that. Put a box around it, circle it, highlight it, put an arrow next to it, whatever. But God, these two words are the center point on which the entire gospel turns. When Paul says, but, he's signaling a massive direction change. That one word is the hinge in this entire section. Everything that was down and dark and depressing and dismal will now be up and uplit and uplifted and light. And our only question when we say, how is this going to get fixed? Guys, it's so significant that Paul says, but God Paul doesn't say, I was dead, I was enslaved, I was condemned, but I, does he? He doesn't say, but I knuckled down, I tried really hard, I turned things around, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I did a thing. That's what makes the difference. He doesn't say that, does he? What's he say? Who makes the difference? Where is the hope? But God. The great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached a 60-minute message on these two words. Consider yourself lucky. <laughs> Here's what he has to say about it. This is a tremendous quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Coming up, maybe. Come on. Here's what he says. These two words, there it is, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done, God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and astonishing work of God. He continues, these are the two words that should be found most frequently, indeed constantly, on the lips of Christian people at a time such as this. And by the way, he said this over half a century ago. How will the wrong of the world be made right? Have you noticed what, that everybody with a social media account has an answer for that question? <laughs> How will the wrong of the world be made right? Let's get our country back to the way it was. Will that make it better? No. Let's make our culture look more Christian. That'll work. 
Doubt it. Push it a step further. Let's get that guy back in office. That'll fix it. No, it won't. Spoiler alert. You want to know how I know? Because none of those address the real problem. They only mask the problem. They are related to the problem in the same way that a symptom is related to a sickness. They reveal the problem in the same way that a fever reveals an infection. So I can't slap a Band-Aid on culture's cancer and naively pronounce it healed. Doesn't work that way. The greatest fool alive today is the one who seeks a secular solution for a spiritual problem. I'm going to give you my hot take, though, for whatever it's worth, because half of you tuned me out. I know that. (laughs) But let me give you my hot take. I think our world's current solution obsession is actually an opportunity for the gospel, because here's what we get to say. No matter how compelling the solution seems, unless it starts with the gospel, it ain't going to (laughs) work. And we know that as Christians. When everything else putters along, peters out, and runs out of gas, then what do we do? Martin Lloyd-Jones continues, he says this, and when they finish, you and I begin. And what is it that you and I have to say to them? Yes, we say. Everything you've been saying is very right, and it's perfectly true. The times are evil. The times are out of joint. The outlook is indeed black, as you say, but God. And then we begin to tell them what the gospel has got to say about it all. This is great. The gospel always begins where man ends. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Holy smokes, that's brilliant. I wish I could say it better myself, but I think he nailed it. Here's what this means. The Christian knows something that the world doesn't know and can't see yet. And if verses 1 through 3 are right, what we need most is mercy. Mercy. Withholding of the just judgment that is due to us. What I need is someone to see me as I am in all my high-def depravity and love me anyway. What I need is someone who's not scared of the darkness in me, but is committed to changing the darkness in me. I need someone who can see my sin and not leverage it for my shame, but redeem it for my joy. And so here's where the avalanche begins. Back to verse 4. We're going to go a little bit slower here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're going to go through that in just a second. Before Paul talks about what God does, did you notice how he introduces him in verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy... He's going to tell us what God did, but first he wants to show us who God is. He's going to give us action. First he wants to give us an introduction. How does Paul describe God? Rich in what? Mercy. At the risk of massively oversimplifying, you are never going to meet someone who is more serious about your sin than God is. But you are also never going to meet someone who is more eager to forgive you than God is. When we the perpetual prodigals of this world begin our long, shameful, shoegazing walk back home. Our God is already looking for us. Our God doesn't trudge down the road to meet us begrudgingly going, well, I guess I should forgive him. 
He isn't cynical, saying, well, I know you say you're sorry, but what's your angle? He isn't reluctant, going, all right, Brandon, last time, pal. What's Paul say? Our God is rich in mercy. Let's sit with this for a few seconds, because our brains don't know what to do with this. (laughs) We really don't. For me, this being rich in mercy presents two possible scenarios. And just walk with me through this for a minute. Scenario number one. Being incurably merciful, God shows me mercy, but he doesn't know that his mercy is wasted on me because I'm going to need it again. Imagine this. Your spouse cheats on you, and you know they're going to do it again. How eager are you to move toward forgiveness? Not much. If you're a parent, imagine your kids lie to you and you know in five minutes they're going to do it again. How eager are you to forgive them? This is like almost inhuman to have that kind of mercy and forgiveness. Aren't you glad God's not like us? (laughs) We've all been on the receiving end of someone that we love breaking our trust. And it hurts. But as we're told, well, that's just life. you got to move on. And so knowing we need to move on, we have this self-protective instinct that comes in and it goes like this. I don't want to forgive anymore. I'm done being hurt. When I run down the road to the prodigal, I trip on the rocks and bust up my knee. When I forgive people, I open myself up to future hurt. I'm done with that. And it makes mercy, the kind that Paul's talking about here, this otherworldly, rare, almost too beautiful to be believed thing. And so something in me wants to remind God and say, don't you know I'm going to do this again? Don't you know I'm going to disappoint you? I just need to warn you, God. Whatever barrel you're dumping this mercy out of, I hope you got a lot of it because you're dealing with me. You're going to need it. So maybe God is just this very merciful, kind, but forgetful fool. That's scenario number one. And I think a lot of people live there because we view God's mercy as a limited quantity. But thankfully, there's another scenario. Scenario number two. Maybe God knows that we're going to blow it. Maybe God knows how much we need him. Maybe God is more of a realist about us than we are about us. (laughs) Maybe God knows that the biggest thing I need is to receive his love, and the only way that I'm going to receive that is for him to drench me in mercy again and again and again and again and again, because maybe, and this seems impossible to believe, maybe he never runs out. Wouldn't that be something? Maybe he knows that running down whatever road he has to run down, giving up whatever he has to give up, whoever he has to give up, is going to be worth it. Because that's the only way that I'm going to understand the power of his love for me. And so with that idea planted in our minds, Paul pushes even further. Back to verse 4. Here's what he says. But God, being rich in mercy. Now watch this happen again. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when, we're going to come back to that. Even when we were dead. There's verse 1 again. In our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love that he interrupts himself there. What a great preacher. (laughs) And then he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How does God show mercy? Three words. You can underline them in your text. He made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with him. It's important to see what those words mean. Remember what we were? We were dead We were enslaved, and we were condemned. And now what are we? We're alive, 
were raised, and were seated. Everything I once was before Christ is now the completely opposite because of Christ. And you caught it, right? When did this happen? When? The answer is right there in verse 5. He says, even when we were dead. Here's why I bring that up. One of the greatest misnomers about the Christian religion is that God asks you to clean your life up first, and then you'll deserve his mercy. Okay, that's a lie. The first two words of verse 5, even when. Guys, this is the gospel. Romans 5, 8 says this. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's this even when kind of mercy that drives the parable of the prodigal son. You remember it. Here's the story. The son rebels against his father, leaves home, wastes his inheritance, and then from the pigsty, the light bulb goes on. This is Luke 15, verse 17. You can write it down. Here's what it says. But when he, that is the son, laying in the pigsty, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. This is what we call rock bottom. And then he says this, I will arise, I'll go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's the son's plan. (laughs) This is his rehearsed speech. Notice how self-centered it is. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go home. I've got to say what I've got to say. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to make things right. But what happens? Such a small detail, you can't miss it. Verse 20, and so he arose and he came to his father. But while, ah, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Just this parade of progressively emotionally vulnerable and intimate words son walking down the road of regret, dirty in the dust of his own depravity, wallowing in self-loathing, but while he was still a long way off. The father, maybe he saw him like a speck on the horizon. You think he was already looking for him? I don't think so. Maybe it was his son's walk that he recognized. Maybe it was the robe that he gave him before he left that was coming back in tatters and he remembered the pattern. Maybe someone tipped him off. Hey, that son of yours, I just saw him on the road. He's on his way back. You better get ready to grill him. But while he was still a long way off, this father's rich in mercy heart runs down the road and before the son even gets a word in, the father sees him, feels compassion, runs to him, embraces him and kisses him. And who knows how long they stood there after maybe years apart. Then comes the restorative dialogue. All because of one word, while. Here's the point and here's the gospel. We have a but while God. We have an even when God. God sees us wallowing in the pigsty of our own self-deprecation and self-loathing, fully aware of my sin and my failures, fine-tuning my little speech, (laughs) trying my best to convince him that he's wasting his mercy on a sinner like me. But before I even open my mouth, he's already there with his father arms around me, burying my head in his chest and saying, everything that you're about to say, I already know it, and it doesn't change my mind. I love you, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. What kind of a God is that? 
Either he's a forgetful fool who's worthy of my pity or he's a loving father who's worthy of my life. But there's more to it. Paul's not done yet. Verse 7. He says he did all this so that, we'll come back to that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then Paul says it again. He says, for by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We're going to get to those so that's in just a minute. But before we do, let's talk about the center pin of these verses. When he says in verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. This is the biggie. I remember being a freshman at um, Moody Bible Institute as a know-it-all 18-year-old. Hard to imagine, right? There was, yeah, that was not an amen line. I'm glad you didn't swing in there. Good job. So I remember this was like freshman Bible intro class. This was like the first text that we were assigned as students to analyze and interpret and then apply and talk about it. And so I'm like chomping at the bit. And this was the text, verse 8. And I remember staying up all night just drinking coffee after coffee after coffee with my friends and my roommate, and we were just like reveling in the simple, powerful beauty of this one verse. Not because we didn't want to know what it meant, but for me, I had never heard the gospel put so consistently and so clearly. I was just dumbstruck. I had nothing to say. Yeah, that was an amen line. That was good, Pat. Thank you. And truthfully, thankfully, this never lost its luster for me. Here's what Paul's saying. He's already mentioned this before, but like playing a game of theological Red Rover, he's going to take another run at it. Verse 8, all of this, this entire salvation experience has absolutely nothing to do with you. It doesn't start with you. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't succeed because of your efforts. You contribute absolutely nothing. Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. You ever clean out the bottom of a toilet with a dish towel? That's your best before God. Yeah. <laughs> Without Christ, that's what our righteousness is like. <laughs> One of the most brilliant theological minds of our time, Jonathan Edwards, said this, the only thing that I contribute to my salvation was the sin that makes it necessary. Mm. Now why does God do all this? Why does he bother? There's two so that's in this section that I want you to see. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And then verse 9. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. God did what he did, how he did, when he did, so that he's the only one who gets credit for doing any of it at all. And then Paul wraps up this entire section, closing it out with verse 10. And it's to this that everything points he says, for we are his workmanship. We're going to come back to that word in just a second. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice he started out by talking how he formerly walked, and now he's inviting us to take a new road that's paved by Christ alone. What's that word workmanship? Some of you know this. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema. Poema. Sounds like the English word Poem. Here's what that means. 
Nobody reads a poem and goes, man, those letters are amazing. Check out the words. No one reads a poem and says, look at the ink. Instead, they marvel at the beauty of the poet. No one stands in front of a painting and commends the subject. Instead, they're dumbstruck by the master artist. Same thing here. When a lost world looks at the life of a saved sinner, it has nothing to do with you. Put simply, God saves you on purpose, and he saves you for a purpose. So we're going to close up in just a second. There are three groups in this room and online that I want to talk about. And the band will be back on in just a minute. Group number one. You're still on this side of those, or this side of this text. You're still in verses one through three. You're on this side of the but God hinge. Just to use the words from this text, you're still dead, you're still enslaved, you're still condemned. That's dark and it's really blunt, but here's what you need to know. You need to know that the gift of salvation is yours in Christ. It's not free, but it's free for you. It costs God everything, it costs you nothing. Jesus went to the cross for your sin and mine. And when we acknowledge that, everything changes. That's the first group. What are you waiting for? If you're still over here, John 10.10, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life to the full. Second group, you're saved, but you're sitting. (laughs) You got over verses one through three. Okay, you got all the way down through verse 9, and you're like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I go to church, I tithe, I give, I'm involved, I'm busy, and that's great. But this business of, like, good works that God prepared in advance, you're not walking in them. You're still kind of behaviorally stuck back here. Here's my word for you. Get around people who can encourage you to walk down the road that Christ has paved for you. Please do not go it alone. The greatest need that we have in our world, one of them, is community. And people spurring us on in the road. Third group. And this is where we'll stop for this morning. Third group. You're saved, and you're not sitting, but you're also not secure yet. Here's my question for you. Do you do what you do for approvedness, or do you do what you do from approvedness? When you think about your Father in heaven, when he thinks about you, what look is on his face? Do you know that he loves you? This last weekend, um, Mandy and I were having dinner with some really great friends. And we were there late. Like, we were there like 6.30, and we didn't leave till like 11, I think. It was wonderful. <laughs> Just the four of us. And we were marveling over the truths of this verse and how impossible it seems to believe the love of God. And my friend, who happens to be a grandpa, he says, you know, I just love her. I love my grandkids. And I said, well, tell me about that. And so we started talking about that. And he says, you know, when Charlie comes up on my lap and he looks at me in the eyes and he says, Pop, Pop, I love you so much. He goes, it just melts my heart. (laughs) And I said, okay. You have a hard time believing that God feels the same way about you. I said, imagine that you guys were in the house and I was out here talking to Charlie alone. And there's a microphone. And I said, Charlie, you know your Pop, Pop loves you, right? And he goes, yeah, I I don't know. I think he does, but I don't know. And then before I could even answer the question, my friend interrupted me, almost choking back tears, and he goes, if I heard that, that would absolutely crush me. Rightfully so. Why? Because God just gives and gives. He wants to be so merciful to you. He wants you to understand how much he loves you. He gave you his son so that you could have hell canceled and heaven guaranteed, and you could have life on purpose. And all he asks 
is that you receive his free gift and not try and earn favor with him, but to enjoy the favor that you already have because of Christ. So where are you on those things? Which group are you in? And maybe you're in this fourth group that you're going, I got all that. And I just want to encourage people on. We're going to sing a song in just a minute, and it it comes right out of this text. The song is just called, But God. We couldn't think of a more appropriate song to sing for this morning in this text. So my word for you is we're going to stand, and you know how this goes. We're going to stand and sing, and we're going to invite you to sing it. If you need to meet with somebody and go, hey, I'm I'm in this group, and I I want to get over here. We're going to have folks at the tables in the back that would love to meet with you and pray with you and just to talk with you. If you need a safe place, Maybe you just need a place to emotionally dump this morning. That's okay, too. (laughs) Let me pray. Oh, our Father, you're so good. We want to say that we love you. We want to say thank you for giving us everything that you have. There's no way that we could pay you back. And so we just say, take our lives. Use us for your purposes. Use us for your glory. Say thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the cross for your son who gave everything that we could become inheritors and heirs, raised and seated, alive. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.